Now, I'd like us to segue into our first witness who we're very, very pleased to have with us this morning, Dr. Francis Christian. <clears throat> Dr. Christian, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Dr. Christian, I'd like you to ask you, first of all, if you would state your full name for the record and spell your first and last name for the record. Yes, uh, my first name is Francis, F-R-A-N-C-I-S, and my surname is Christian, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Now, Dr. Christian, you have been a surgeon for over 30 years? I have, 25 years, actually. Okay, and uh, I'm sorry. And you uh, actually were a professor of surgery at the University of Saskatchewan. Yes, I was clinical professor of surgery in the University of Saskatchewan. That's right. And although you were a professor of surgery, so you're teaching other doctors how to become surgeons, you continued to be a surgeon yourself at the same time. Correct. Um, if I may, uh, I, I can just tell you very briefly what I was doing in the yeah, University of Saskatchewan. Do. Yes. So my, my roles there were, uh, could be thought of in three parts. The first was as a surgeon, like you said. I did general surgery, trauma surgery, cancer surgery, that sort of thing, thyroid surgery. I have a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and a fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons uh, of Canada. Um, the other parts of my role as uh, clinical professor of surgery was I was very involved in data analysis and evidence-based medicine analysis. I taught medical students and residents how to critically read uh, journal articles, how to make sense of the data, I gave many presentations. I, I regularly published peer review articles. Uh, I was also director of the uh, quality and patient safety department of the uh, Department of Surgery. And in that role, I introduced the department to the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, uh, which is a very data-intensive program. I also, with the computer science department in the university uh, developed an app for iPhone and Android, which is still being used, I believe, in, throughout Saskatchewan for improving quality by recording morbidity and mortality. Um, in addition, I, the third part of my role in, as clinical professor of surgery was uh, in ethics and in the humanities, I was director of the Surgical Humanities Department, which I founded, and was the founding editor of the Journal of the Surgical Humanities, which has a worldwide circulation. I had the privilege of being the lead author of the Canadian Association of General Surgeons' position statement on professionalism. So you come here today speaking about how colleges have treated doctors and how doctors have acted um, with quite uh, experience and uh, authority behind you. I will just advise the commissioners that we have Dr. Christian's CV entered as Exhibit SA3. Now, Dr. Christian, can you tell us as this COVID pandemic started to come across uh, or be imposed on us or experienced, 
what your initial thoughts were and, um, and then if your initial thoughts changed. So I'm just kind of asking you to share your, your first part of your journey with us. Um, when the whole thing started in 2020, I initially uh, thought I should give the government a bit of a rope. It was supposed to be a new virus, and, and let's see uh, what they come up with. But uh, towards the end of April, the beginning of May, I started seeing signs of uh, what I had learned uh, in my studies, in, uh, historical studies of what happened in the Soviet Union. You see, when I was a, I was, when I was a teenager, I read a very influential book. Uh, it's called Tortured for Christ. And it's by Richard Wombrand, and essentially talked about how the Soviet Union, uh, with its tyranny, was able to exert this, this control over millions of people, including uh, this pastor Wombrand. And I decided at that time that I would make the study of the Soviet Union a part of my life journey. And so I saw certain things which which were very reminiscent of what was happening in the Soviet Union uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And that is censorship, the media becoming an arm of the government uh, instead of holding government to account. I saw um, prominent uh, scientists being censored, deplatformed, uh, words like disinformation crept in, and that was straight out of the Soviet playbook. In fact, it was, it was the Soviet Union that invented that word. Disinformation was actually a Stalinist term. So I saw that. I saw some of the scientists that I had known about before COVID as prominent scientists, people like Paul Marek, whose work in the ICU was known to me even before COVID. Um, they were being censored. Pierre Corey was being censored. Uh, his point-of-care ultrasound book is still being read by people in our hospitals here. So then I decided to look at the data, and none of it made any sense at all. And I tried to influence my colleagues. You see, as a surgeon, you work with anesthesiologists. And anesthesiologists often also work in the ICU. So I would engage them in conversation. I would ask them about the data, query them about the data, and then try and steer them uh, in the way of the data. And I wasn't making much headway. And then in 2021, in the spring of 2021, the government rolled out the um, COVID injection to our children. And that was being done in what I would call warp speed. And I decided that I couldn't stay silent anymore because uh, children don't have voices and we have to be their voice. So I had a press conference in which I, I asked for something which shouldn't really be controversial, and that is informed consent. I pointed out what informed consent in the COVID era looks like and what informed consent for the injection should look like. And uh, I had this press conference, which was actually well attended by the local press. 
Uh, and one week later, I was called into a meeting and fired from my contract. Uh, and that so, and is I'll, more I'll just, or less my story. I'll just stop you there. So yeah. My understanding is there were five doctors that participated in that press conference. No, there was me. I think you're talking about a video. That oh, yeah, was, I'm talking yeah, about the yeah. video. I am. Uh, so, the, and I'm sorry, please tell us about that. Yeah, so the, the, the press conference was just me and another surgeon, uh, and, sorry, another doctor who uh, I hope will be here or is here. Um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Chong Wong, who's a family doctor, and he also spoke at the press conference. What was the response to that? Well, first of all, tell us about the video and the response to the video. Well, the video itself was about a week before the press conference, and that wasn't a, a factor in my firing, not according to that meeting and not according to what they what they uh, produced afterwards, but essentially that was a video with uh, five other uh, physicians as well that was just talking about the science around the COVID uh, pandemic. Right, and <clears throat> to be more specifically, would be talking about the science that was not being reported by the mainstream media. That, that as well, yes. Right, so the purpose of the video was to get truthful scientific information absolutely. to the public. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm just going to, because uh, I understand you ended up writing a letter um, after the video. And uh, David, can you pull that up on the screen? I just want to read basically your last two paragraphs um, from your letter, just so that people watching understand the types of things that you were saying. And so this is a June 12, 2021 letter. It will be posted as Exhibit SA3A on our website. But Dr. Christian, you write, for many months during this pandemic, I have tried to influence the system from within and have not made any public statements. My decision to make the video that has generated so much interest is a direct result of the vaccine being rolled out at warp speed to our kids. Not even a semblance of full and accurate informed consent is being made available to parents or children and kids are being induced and incentivized to get the shot in schools, even without parental knowledge or consent. Any attempt to silent physicians is destined to fail. The Nuremberg Code specifically makes the acquiring of informed consent an absolute requirement in the care of our patients. The Declaration of Canadian Physicians for Science and Truth, which I signed together with my Ontario physician colleagues and concerned members of the public, is already at 16,000 plus signatures. As the declaration points out, any attempt to stifle physicians and their pursuit of the solemn duty and obligation of informed consent may itself constitute a crime against humanity. Can you just explain for us that last paragraph? Yes. Um, the, the, the Nuremberg trials were essentially uh, held after the Second World War in order to uh, make sure that such a thing never happens again. And the doctor's trial was as kind of a subset of the Nuremberg trials. And after that, there was the Nuremberg Code that was published, which made sure that no experiment can be done on anybody without proper informed consent. And at the time of this letter, at the time of this, um, at the time of this 
the, the press conference that I had, and even to this day, I believe, it is still an experiment, a massive experiment on a large scale on a population which hasn't been given the information for informed consent. You can only give informed consent if you have the information for informed consent. And so uh, I pointed out that that Nuremberg Code is being violated. And therefore, that violation could constitute a crime against humanity. My understanding is, is that the lessons from the Nuremberg Code and basically the need for informed consent, which you know requires both an understanding of the benefits and the risks, is or has been incorporated into codes of conduct for physicians and for pharmacists and for nurses in Canada. Yes, uh, I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Nuremberg Code has informed uh, several other codes and several other statements of professionalism and, um, and, and, and ethical behavior for physicians, nurses, pharmacists, and so on. Yes. Now, you were telling us earlier that, you know, then after the press conference that you were uh, basically fired. Um, can you share with us a little more about that? So are you meaning you actually were fired as a surgeon? Like, were you fired from yes. all of your responsibilities? Yes, I, I, uh, I was fired from my contract. And because I was fired from my contract, uh, I essentially lost my directorships as well. I, I really don't know how they thought that firing me from the director of the surgical humanities was going to serve the public. Because the reason I founded that department is so that the uh, you know medical students, residents, surgeons, nurses can be brought into contact, can engage with the humanities, with art and literature, poetry, drama, and so on. Because my contention was you can't really be a good surgeon or a good doctor of the human being without knowing the human story. So firing me from that position, uh, I have absolutely no idea how that served the pandemic's uh, purpose, the pandemic management purpose. No. Um, but I have to say that uh, uh, that that particular meeting uh, was uh, was was very much. Was, people have asked me, "Were you were you shocked?" surprised, and I wasn't because I had studied the Soviet Union. I was very disturbed. And there were many, you know, tribunals that were set up in the Soviet Union for these show trials uh, where people were, and in my presentation, I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. So I was not shocked, but I was very disturbed. Yes, and actually, I'll, I'll invite you to go into your presentation. You've prepared um, some themes that you wanted to share with us, and yes. I'd invite you to, uh, to do that now. Uh, I'll, I'll go into my presentation uh, straight away, um, and uh, I, could, I, I think I would prefer just to go through the presentation, and then I could answer questions from the commissioners after that, and from you, Mr. Buckley. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to give my expert witness testimony. 
for an event which I think will be a major historical event in the life of our nation. Because when this time is written about and spoken about, there will be a record. Um, the scope of my testimony is essentially uh, going to be about our children and the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, the suppression of early effective treatment, and how are vaccine injuries reported in Canada. Uh, now, before I go into that, I just want to make some preliminary remarks on the use and abuse of data by our health authorities and our governments. Uh, data, give me data, is actually from Sherlock Holmes, and it was told to Watson. And in the age of COVID, it should be data, give me transparent data. And data should not be used to frighten the people. The truth always comes out. Data should not be used to manipulate the population. The population pays the salary of public health officials, physicians, and politicians. And finally, data should not be used to obscure the real data. There will be a price to pay. And there's one more point. Data should be transparent and consistent and verifiable. And so very quickly, I'm going to go through uh, some of the manipulation and, and, ops, uh, and obscuring of data that took place. This is Alberta data, diagnosis of COVID after the first dose. And for three weeks, at least after the first dose in Saskatchewan, this, this group of people would be called unvaccinated. And if you look at that, uh, that, that graph, the peak of cases is at 10 days after the first dose. In Saskatchewan and most provinces, they would be unvaccinated again. What about hospitalizations I'll, I'll after just, the first I'll, dose? I'll just stop you so that people understand. When you say unvaccinated, you mean for the public statistics. Yes. So when they're reporting on TV, oh, we had 20 million, you know, COVID cases this week, you know, run and hide um, <clears throat> and get vaccinated. Yes. Well, that 20 million could be all vaccinated people because their definition of vaccinated is basically 14 days after. Now, in Alberta, my understanding is you're un you were unvaccinated for statistics purposes until 14 days after your yes. second dose, and there could be a long wait. Was that the same with Saskatchewan? I believe it's similar in Saskatchewan, Okay, yes. and I'm sorry for interrupting. No, I just no, not thought that all. was important for people. Yeah. Uh, and this is, uh, once again, it's Alberta da uh, data because we don't have Saskatchewan data released yet. And should not, shouldn't the public here too know this really important uh, group of data? I think so. Um, so here again, hospitalizations after the first dose, it peaks at 5 to 15 days after the first dose. And then in Saskatchewan, such a person would be called unvaccinated. What about deaths after the first dose? These are Alberta statistics again, but in Saskatchewan, we don't have this data. Notice that death peaks at 12 days after the first dose of the vaccine. In Saskatchewan, again, unvaccinated. So uh, I'm just going to run through data which I believe was manipulated and uh, was given to us in a way that was meant to deceive us. And this is uh, lifted right out of the Saskatchewan annual 
uh, Saskatchewan Health Authority report, page 15. And this talks about, um, this, this tells us about COVID-19 and ICU beds. And if you look at that circle there, it, look, it looks at ICU bed discharges and visits before the pandemic. And then if you look at uh, ICU uh, bed discharges and visits during the pandemic, it is actually less, significantly less. So you remember they were trying to scare us by saying, you know, our ICUs are being overcrowded and you have to get vaccinated, otherwise our ICUs will be overwhelmed. Now, I, I, there, 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 there may be some other explanation for it, but on the face of it, the numbers do not lie. The ICU utilization before the pandemic was actually more than during the pandemic. Now, what about throughout Canada? Uh, now, m many members of the public do not understand the ICU bed is not a physical bed. An ICU bed is nursing, physician, and other staff required to staff a bed. And during the pandemic, was the real ICU bed shortage a shortage of staff with burnout, sick leave, and so on? And were patients admitted to the ICU with COVID or because of COVID? And there's a big difference there. And how many comorbidities did the average ICU patient have? What about ICU bed usage in Canada before and after the pandemic? And this is Kaihai data, Canadian Institute of Health. Uh, and essentially, it tells the same story. On the left of your screen is ICU bed admissions before the pandemic on the right of the screen is during the pandemic. And in fact, ICU bed admissions during the pandemic was less than before the pandemic. Okay, with that introduction about the data, I'm gonna get into the meat of my presentation. And the first um, subject I'm going to speak about is our children and the COVID-19 injection or vaccine. Uh, I want to remind the public that Pfizer has a criminal history. This is, in fact, from Pfizer, from the Department of Justice United States website, and it talks about how the Justice Department announced the largest health care fraud settlement in its history. Fraud settlement, 2.3 billion dollars for fraudulent marketing. Exhibit two, Pfizer to pay $325 million in Neurontin settlement, defrauded insurers and other healthcare benefit providers were marketing Neurontin in a fraudulent way. Pfizer admits bribery in eight countries. For three years, Pfizer Italy employees provided free cell phones, photocopiers, printers, televisions to doctors, arranged for vacations such as weekend in Gallipoli, weekend with companion and weekend in Rome, and even made direct cash payments under the guise of lecture fees and honoraria in return for promises by doctors to recommend or prescribe Pfizer products. And it happened in Italy, Bulgaria, China, Croatia, Czech Republic, Russia, Serbia, Kazakhstan, and I'm sure in many other countries too. Now, 
By summer of 2021, and actually much before that, it was obvious that there was more than a 1,000-fold mortality risk difference between children and the elderly. What that means is that if you're very young, you had more than a thousand-fold less risk of dying than if you were very old. And uh, there was this study from England that showed, quote, SARS-CoV-2 is very rarely fatal in, uh, even among the under, with underlying morbidities among children. Uh, in Germany, with 80 million people, this November 2021 study showed there was not a single COVID death in children. And my contention still is that this should be, have been, in every informed consent discussion. So what is the risk of COVID for children? In fact, there's a statistically zero risk of dying of COVID less than the annual flu. There's 10 times less risk of dying of COVID for a healthy child than of a car accident. Now, teachers kept saying, oh, we are scared that they will infect us. In fact, there were studies in multiple countries, including this one from Scotland, that showed that teachers are safer than the general public. And so healthy children do not need, did not need the mRNA injection, which has never been used clinically in humans before. So for a zero risk of dying children's disease, what are the risks of the mRNA injection? You see, myocarditis is only one of the many vaccine harms that the data is showing. There's also paralysis, transverse myelitis, Bell's palsy, strokes, pulmonary embolism, and a whole lot of other adverse events. And on the left, you see this very, very sad and tragic case of Maddie de Garay, who had paralysis, a child, who had paralysis waist down and being tube fed after Pfizer mRNA injection. And this girl is actually in Pfizer's own data, but Pfizer's refusing to acknowledge it. Now the captured media says that these adverse events are rare or very rare. What is rare? One in 10,000, one in 5,000, one in 250? Remember, the COVID-19 virus poses no risk of dying of COVID for your healthy child. Rare is only up to the point it affects your own child. And I defy any decent human being to watch that video in that, in that link I've put up there and not cry with this father, uh, Ernest Ramirez, who lost his 16-year-old son from myocarditis from the vaccine. What is the mortality after myocarditis? So we've been bombarded by the media with stories about mild myocarditis. In fact, we know the mortality long-term from studies in Germany which showed that the 6.5-year mortality was 20%. 20% are dead after 6.5 years. The Korean study showed that 25% 0.5% with myocarditis are dead in 10 years. There's no such thing as mild myocarditis. Uh, how many myocarditis present to hospital? 
in various studies is one in 2,500, one in 6,000, and in the Thailand study where they actually looked for myocarditis, it was one in 250. But many myocarditis cases will not present to hospital but will still have damaged heart muscle. So what is the observed mortality of myocarditis? We know. It's 20% at 6.5 years and 25.5% at 10 years. What don't we know about the other medium and long-term effects of the mRNA injection? So what should informed consent for children look like? The risk of your child dying of COVID is almost zero. The vaccine has a new gene technology that has never been used clinically before. The vaccine was approved using emergency use or interim use authorization. It is experimental. Its medium and long-term effects are unknown. To qualify for emergency use authorization, there must be an emergency. There is no emergency in healthy children. Children are of no danger to adults. There are thousands of deaths associated with the vaccine. Myocarditis is a serious condition and can be caused by the vaccine. Its real incidence is unknown. It could be 1 in 5,000 or 1 in 250 or even commoner. Myocarditis can be fatal. Many other serious vaccine adverse events are happening. And the risk of the vaccine for a healthy child is likely more than the risk of COVID. That, in my view, should be the minimum information for informed consent and this has not changed since my press conference in June 2021. But, but there is a farce that is underway of informed consent in Canadian children. This is uh, thanks to the good folk at Sask Alliance, and I've put the link there for those who want to go to their website, and these are documents through Freedom of Information requests. That on the left, you see consent for COVID-19 vaccine for children. And I want you to concentrate on this. It is recommended that parents, guardians discuss consent for immunization with their children. Efforts are first made to get parental guardian consent for immunizations. However, children 13 years old and older who are able to understand the benefits and possible reactions for reactions, what does that mean? Does it mean death? Does it mean adverse events? but for each vaccine and the risk of not getting immunized can legally consent to receive or refuse immunization in Saskatchewan. So uh, this, is, this is a farce because if you've seen my previous slide, which 13-year-old can understand all the things that needs to be understood? I haven't met a 13-year-old who can understand even half of what is required to be understood for informed consent. So. As part of the informed consent process in Saskatchewan, they were directed to the vaccine information sheet. As far as I uh, could find out, this was the vaccine information sheet. And, and what they say here is people who are vaccinated may, may experience mild to moderate side effects. Uh, I don't know if you can call death a mild to moderate side effect or paralysis a mild to moderate side effect or myocarditis. They are minimal for most people and should go away in a few days. Death doesn't go away. And apparently this mantra, vaccines are safe and effective. 
But as we know, this should be, they, these are all the things that should be there in informed consent, but wasn't, and that hasn't changed. So my question for parents is, should you trust your children to accompany with a criminal history? That um, illustration on the right is from the great work of the British illustrator and cartoonist Bob Moran. I've put his website in the link there. It shows a plucky little fellow hiding behind his mother who is standing up bravely to the COVID criminal enterprise. But I want to tell the commissioners, Mr. Buckley, the public, my efforts, our efforts, our campaign to inform and educate parents and keep our children safe has worked. Much more work remains to be done, but we are winning. Millions of mothers all over the world have not believed the narrative of the COVID criminal enterprise and have heroically kept their children safe. My question for the government of Canada, the provincial governments, their agencies and their operatives, and for corrupt legacy media, why do you want so desperately to inject our children with a dangerous vaccine that they do not need? And now I'll go into the second part of my testimony, which is the suppression of early effective treatment of COVID-19. And ivermectin, uh, mind you, is only one of several different medications, drugs, and supplements that have been shown to be effective, but I'm taking this example anyway. So I'll try and tell you what happened, why it happened, and why it must never happen again. On the right bottom, you see the inventor or the discoverer of, the, of ivermectin of the group of, of, uh, of materials that later became ivermectin the Avermectin, Satoshi Omura. He won the Nobel, Nobel Prize in 2015. It was commercialized, commercialized as Ivermectin in 1981. And since 1987, it has been used in billions of patients around the world to combat parasitic diseases. And 100 million doses of Ivermectin are administered every year. It's a very safe drug, and it's safer than Tylenol. It's actually in the WHO's essential medicines list. Ivermectin before the pandemic, the patent had long expired. It costs less than 10 cents in most countries to produce and sell. And even at that time, it was being approved for uses that were off-label. Now, off-label means that the physician using his or her own judgment and the sacrosanct patient-doctor relationship is able to prescribe a drug for off-label use. And a study showed that 20% of all prescriptions in the US are off-label, 50% of all pediatric prescriptions in Europe are off-label. The antiviral effect of ivermectin had already been shown for a range of viruses, including the dengue virus, the HIV virus, the encephalitis virus, and a range of RNA viruses. If you look at these studies, uh, this one shows that ivermectin is a specific inhibitor of the H replication of HIV and dengue virus. 2012 May, it shows in, again in 2012, 
that ivermectin is uh, an inhibitor of viral activity, new prospects for an old drug, and this is actually a very good article, uh, which, uh, which is titled, I Ivermectin, Enigmatic and Multifaceted Wonder Drug Continues to Surprise and Exceed Expectations, again, before the pandemic. During the pandemic, the antiviral activity of ivermectin was actually noted against the COVID-19 virus in April 2020. And what about ivermectin in clinical trials? Uh, many of you will know this website. It's from the FLCCC website, and it shows that ivermectin for COVID-19 has massive beneficial effects in, in COVID-19 for prophylaxis, for early and late treatment, 82%, 62%, 42%, and so on. So during the pandemic, we had no effective approved treatment for at-home outpatient treatment. Ivermectin is one of the safest drugs known to mankind. It had already shown antiviral activity, including against the COVID-19 virus. It was showing remarkable efficacy to save lives in real-world clinical trials. Even if some studies did not show benefit, it was a safe drug to use. It was the logical drug to use for early effective treatment. But what actually happened is that the pharmaceutical companies started a campaign against ivermectin. The media came down on ivermectin like a ton of bricks. They were writing articles that were supposed to be done by fact checkers. But in fact, the fact checkers were not doctors at all. They were mostly young people with basic undergrad degrees. And Matt Taibbi of the Twitter Files fame actually wrote uh, an article on this. Why has ivermectin become a dirty word? What happened in Canada with ivermectin? Doctors were suspended for using ivermectin. Ivermectin became scarce, probably because imports were stopped. Pharmacists refused to dispense ivermectin, even with a doctor's prescription. And pharmacists reported doctors and are reporting doctors for prescribing ivermectin. And the captured Canadian media campaigns vigorously against ivermectin. And doctor, can I just stop you there? Has it ever uh, happened before where pharmacists were refusing to fulfill prescriptions written Never. by medical doctors and reporting medical doctors to their colleges? Never. The, the pharmacists will sometimes call me or call a doctor and say, you know, I, I want some clarification. And uh, is this what you had in mind? And that's the extent of the query that the pharmacist does to the physician. Okay, so this, yeah. this was an extreme this was an change in behavior. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the FDA put out this uh, completely ridiculous cartoonish thing. You are not a horse. You're not a cow. Seriously, you all stop it. As if they didn't know that it was being used all over the world in human beings. And meanwhile, the Hollywood reporter is slamming Joe Rogan. Uh, Joe Rogan says he tested positive for COVID-19, takes unproven horse dewormer. And there was only one contrary article in the Wall Street Journal, why is the FDA attacking a safe, effective drug? After all, it is a safe drug. 
let's say there was no overwhelming proof it works. Why not try it? Why the war against ivermectin? And to answer that, ask yourself the following questions. If there is a safe, early, effective treatment, why a vaccine? If there is safe, early, effective treatment, why emergency or interim use authorization for a vaccine? And if there is safe, early, effective treatment, why the lockdowns, the masks, the closed school closures, the business closures? And if there is a low-cost, safe, if early, effective treatment, where are the billions to be made by Big Pharma? So follow the money. COVID vaccine profits minted nine new pharma billionaires. And Pfizer's 2022 revenue from the vaccines was a record $100 billion. The money that can be made from ivermectin, zero. Now, this is a very disturbing article that came out in the British Medical Journal last year. It looked at what percentage of the regulatory agencies in various countries, in other words, the agencies that approve drugs and vaccines, are actually financed by the industry itself. You heard that right. Uh, what percentage of the regulatory agencies like Health Canada are financed by the industry they're meant to regulate. And this is the table from that article. Canada is, is right on the right side and Australia, Europe, UK, Japan, USA. You'll notice that Canada's uh, budget, Health Canada's budget for approval and so on, is massive per, per, per Canadian compared to other countries. But more than half of its budget comes from the industry itself. Conflicts of interest, they're not made available to the public. And the regulator routinely receives uh, patient-level data sets, no, in Canada. In other words, the, the Health Canada simply believes whatever the vaccine company or the drug manufacturer tells them. And not surprisingly, 83% of drugs are approved, the new drugs are approved. This is truly disturbing and bizarre. The industry that is big pharma, that the regulator, Health Canada, is meant to regulate it, gives money to the regulatory agency, Health Canada. And Shakespeare would say, not a rose but a bribe by any other name smells just as sweet to big pharma. And if you want to know the Canadian implications of this, you can go to that article which I have in my slide. Follow the money. On the right, you see this very ethical, very intelligent woman who was a physician, who's a physician and former editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the premier journals in medicine. When she retired in 2000, she wrote a book, The Truth About the Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us and What to Do About It. And I quote from the book, Now primarily a marketing machine to sell drugs of dubious benefit, Big Pharma is, uses its wealth and power to co-opt every institution that might stand in its way, including the U.S. Congress, the FDA, academic medical centers, and the medical profession itself. And also from the book, quote, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published. 
or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I have reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Marcia Angel. Now, it turns out that the present editor of the New England Journal of Medicine is also in the advisory body of the FDA approving the vaccines. And finally, uh, the last part of my presentation uh, is the COVID vaccine injured Canadian. Uh, I want to start with the COVID vaccine injured American. Uh, they have a simple web-based form, and I quote from the WARES website, VAERS accepts reports from anyone. Patients, parents, caregivers, and health providers are encouraged to report adverse events after vaccination. Now, this remembers a simple web-based form. Now, what about the COVID vaccine-injured Canadian? Unlike an American, a Canadian citizen cannot directly report a vaccine injury to Health Canada or even to the provincial public health agency. Don't take my word for it. This is from Health Canada itself. And it says, should you experience an adverse event, adverse event, please talk to your doctor. Okay. So step one is find a doctor. Not always easy uh, for a Canadian. Step two, get the doctor to believe you. Again, in the COVID era, we know that most doctors don't believe patients. And, and, they ex and you have to get the doctor to accept your injuries related to the vaccine and agree to file a report. Okay, let's say you find such an ethical, compassionate doctor, believes you, accepts the vaccine injury, wants to file a report. He's confronted with a con complex nine-page PDF form, which he has to download from Public Health Agency of Canada. And the user guide to comp complete the form runs to 40 pages on how to complete the form. Okay. So, the compassionate ethical doctor is found, he believes you, or she believes you, fills out the nine-page PDF form with 40 pages of instructions. Then the doctor must send form to the provincial health agency. And in Saskatchewan, this is again from the Health Canada website, you'll notice that the, the, the address to send it to is given there, the Saskatchewan Ministry of Health Population Health Branch, but there's no fax number and no email address. You have to send it by snail mail. Okay, step five. Compassionate ethical doctor found, believes you, fills out nine-page PDF form with 40 pages of instructions. Doctor must send form to provincial health agency. The public health official must then approve the vaccine injury. This step is a mystery to me and to almost everybody. If not approved, the vaccine injury report is stopped cold. Remember, this public health official who has to prove it has not even seen the patient. And, and would that person be a medical doctor? Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I believe it is, but it's a mystery. Compassionate medical doctor found, believes you, fills out a nine-page PDF form with 40 pages of instructions, then the doctor must send the form to the provincial health agency. Then the public health official must approve the vaccine injury. This step is a mystery. If not approved, the vaccine injury report is stopped cold in its tracks. And then if the provincial public health uh, official approves, the vaccine injury report is sent to Public Health Canada and entered. What are the conclusions? 
The Canadian vaccine injury reporting system is convoluted and broken. There are major roadblocks and impediments to reporting at every step. It appears to be designed to actively discourage reporting. It is failing the citizens of Canada. There's an urgent need for an independent, accessible, robust, and patient-centered vaccine injury reporting system. And I'll uh, conclude my, uh, my uh, testimony with a few important observations. What is an expert and what is a consensus? The progress of science depends on debate, comparison, dissent, and the pursuit of truth. There are always experts on both sides of a debate. An opinion, even a majority opinion, cannot be called a consensus. There is no consensus in the COVID-19 pandemic. And you see, uh, uh, can I run this two-minute video? You can. The experts were very wrong. During 2021, we should be able to manufacture a lot of vaccines, and, and that vaccine our key goal is to stop the transmission, to get the immunity levels up so that you get almost no, almost no uh, infection going on whatsoever. Everyone who takes the vaccine is not just protecting themselves, but reducing their transmission uh, to other people and allowing society to get back to normal. We can kind of almost see the end. We're, we're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. It cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. That means the vaccines will get us to the end of this. Essentially, vaccines block you from getting and giving up the virus. Fully vaccinated people are at a very, very low risk of getting COVID-19. Therefore, if you've been fully vaccinated, no longer need to wear a mask. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. We have all the vaccines we need. We just need our people to take it. A, for their own protection, for the protection of their family, but also to break the chain of transmission. You want to be a dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. You don't allow it to use you as the stepping stone to the next person. I think given the country as a whole, the fact that we have now about 50% of adults fully vaccinated and about 62% of adults having received at least one dose as a nation, I, I'm, I feel fairly certain you're not gonna see the kind of surges we've seen in the past. If you're vaccinated, you're not gonna be hospitalized. You're not gonna be an ICU unit and you're not going to die. You're okay. You're not going to, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Yeah. So the experts, as you saw, were very wrong. Uh, and the other experts, it turns out, were correct. Vaccines for all was not the way out of the pandemic. This was the days of Delta. And it also showed that the vaccine viral load was actually the same. Uh, in the vaccine, the COVID-19 viral uh, load was the same in the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. 
and it showed that countries that were highly vaxxed, 100% vaccination, 99% were also getting the highest uh, counts of new COVID cases. And what is misinformation and disinformation in science? Both terms were used extensively in government propaganda in the Soviet Russia and in Nazi Germany. It cannot be, I don't agree with you, is equals, equals misinformation or disinformation. If you don't agree with me, debate, discuss, and disprove me. That is the way of science. On the right of your screen there is a virologist, viral immunologist, antivirus vaccine developer and va Canadian hero, Dr. Byram Bridal. And this is what he said in his recent Substack. Over the past three years, not one person has, who has accused me of disseminating mis myths or disinformation relating to COVID-19 has ever offered me the courtesy of a conversation prior to doing so, not one. Uh, the other thing that was said was everything was for the common good. Individual and societal evils, which are bad, cannot justify the greater good, and they are fundamentally opposed ideas. But individuals and people, even churches, can be deluded and scared and traumatized into believing that the harm they do is for the greater or the common good. This is the playbook of totalitarian regimes. By repeating the harms, loss of our freedoms and liberties, the common good delusion is normalized and the people become desensitized to harm and evil. Like in this case, who doesn't remember the media headlines? I have no empathy left for the willfully unvaccinated. Let them die. Unvaccinated patients do not deserve ICU beds. And as a physician and a surgeon, uh, should I be asking the question, what about the willfully obese or the willful smoker? Or do patients with alcoholic cirrhosis deserve ICU beds? Of course they do. We don't pass moral judgments in medicine. But government-led propaganda works, us and them. I put this up because uh, the guy on the left was supposed to be uh, supporting the common good by saying that one of the fittest people ever to walk the planet, Novak Djokovic, is a threat to health services. Uh, I think that's, that's enough said about that particular, uh, anyway. Now, I want to talk about uh, uh, Trofim Lysenko of the Soviet Union, who was a geneticist, who Stalin elevated to the head of the science academies. Uh, he disagreed with what he called the bourgeois ideas of the West, uh, and especially also the bourgeois ideas of the Aust Austrian monk, Gregor Mendel, you must remember the Soviet Union was uh, militantly atheistic. And uh, it turned out that uh, Lysenko had a particular view of science, a, sci a view where he said that math has no place in biology. And he put the famous geneticist and his mentor Vavilov on the right in prison where he died. And so you can actually look this up even in Wikipedia. Lysenkoism is only my view of science is the truth. Everything else is conspiracy, false, misinformation. Scientists and physicians were persecuted if they, if they strayed from the official narrative. 
And in time, this came to include all of science except nuclear physics and space. More than 3,000 scientists were deported to the Gulag, imprisoned, or executed. Now, in the COVID era, the academy, the university, has played lip service to academic freedom, but has implemented academic tyranny. Uh, the official COVID narrative, which I call COVIDism, which, is, which has become like a religion, uh, and deeply flawed people like Fauci are the religion's high priests. And, and doctor, I'm, I'm just going to ask how much time you have left, uh, just because we also want to allow for yes, some commissioner questions. I think it'll, it'll be only another two or three minutes. Okay. Uh, this religion has prayers, chants, and slogans like vaccines are safe and effective. Uh, when faced with the ev evidence to the contrary, they follow it up by persecution, and the free exchange of scientific ideas has been abandoned. With the licensing bodies, they've become the top police of COVID uh, license coism. The COVID narrative uh, is uh, the religion, COVIDism. The religion of COVIDism then threatens to excommunicate you, i.e. take your license, unless you recant. And the data and evidence do not count at all. And the persecution is pursued with religious fervor, ostensibly for the common good. Now, this is my last slide, and I want to uh, end this testimony by asking Trudeau, Wuhan, and Fauci, and Pfizer three questions. Uh, the preamble to the questions is the lab leak theory, which was once considered a racist conspiracy and which is now considered the most likely explanation. Question one, what really happened in Winnipeg, Canada's taxpayer-funded level four infectious diseases lab? You will recall that just before the COVID pandemic, uh, two Chinese army scientists, what were they doing in our level four infectious diseases lab. Anyway, they were marched out by the uh, RCMP and deported. We don't know what they were doing. Why is Trudeau hiding the truth from Canadians and going to extraordinary lengths to do so? Was gain of function research being done in Winnipeg and then exported to Wuhan? Thank you very much. No, doctor, um, we're, we're going to do this. Uh, we're, I'm going to open you up to commissioner questions, um, but because we have a virtual witness scheduled in about five minutes, no. I'm going to ask if um, there are further questions, um, if we could adjourn you and have you come back after the, the next virtual witness. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, The PDF of this should uh, be uh, in your uh, record if you want it. So, um, you know, anybody will be able to download it and go to the links. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions. Oh. And doctor, if you can still sit down, there may be some commissioner questions. I want to thank you for your presentation. I too have read the book, Tortured for Christ, and found the content very insightful. My question has to do with the Tri-Council Research Ethics Certificate Program. It addresses research ethics and informed consent requirements for minors under the age of 18 and for those persons who are unable to make decisions, informed decisions for themselves. And as you suggest in your letters, students were being induced and incentivized to get the shot in schools even without parental knowledge or consent. So my question is this. 
How do we reconcile that adults in positions of authority, and I'm referring specifically to school boards, administrators, and teachers, who are taught research ethics as part of their academic credentialing, how they just complied without question, essentially doing what they were told to do to the point of putting our children at risk? Uh, that's a very good question, and uh, I'm afraid it doesn't have an easy answer, but I can tell you what is, uh, what is egregiously wrong in the system. And what is egregiously wrong is the school, the uh, authorities in school, the government, uh, the, even the school boards taking the place of parents. That is a trend that's been happening for several decades, actually. It's not a new thing. Uh, the, the, the state would like to own your children if they could. Uh, and this is just another manifestation of that very disturbing trend. I think we need to take education back. Uh, we need to, be, to, to make it very clear to government that these are our children, not yours. Thank you, Dr. Christian, for your very interesting presentation this morning. Uh, I had a couple of questions. The first one is about the, all of the uh, obstacle for reporting uh, adverse effect following vaccination. We, we've seen in the states that this system been put in place, if I'm not mistaken, in the early 90s or something like that, when they wanted to uh, make that a practice to report. And it was, it can be done, well, it, it, it's been working for quite some time. I was not aware of the, uh, the system in Canada that was something that different. And so there's been a number of people that have done some uh, analysis or attempt to analyze the so-called under-reporting factor that we see in the verse data. It, some people say it's 100-fold, some people say it's 30-fold, depending on how you, you, do, you do the, the number. Uh, Based on the additional obstacle that seems to exist in Canada, what would you estimate the under-reporting factor to be in Canada? Is my mic on? Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Commissioner, for that question. I think it's a very important question for Canadians. Um, that study you were referring to is the study that showed that uh, on a conservative scale, the under-reporting in the VAERS system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in the United States, is that it reports anything from 1% to 10% of actual injuries. Okay. Now, when coming to Canada, I think the problem is that about 99.99999% of Canadians don't actually know how a... Uh, vaccine injuries reported in Canada. Uh, as I pointed out in my testimony, the system is convoluted and broken. It's designed, I think, to discourage people from reporting anything at all. Now, is there a way to actually make sure that we can get robust report reporting systems in place? I think yes. But as you know, in Canada, health is a provincial subject, and provinces have to come together and come up, and, and you know, all the 
premiers and the health ministers have to come together and say, you know, our vaccine reporting, injury reporting system is lousy. It's not serving Canadians. We need a better system. It has to happen. Uh, I, if the open VAERS system where any U.S. citizen can actually go to the website, fill in a simple web-based form and report a vaccine injury, if that itself is showing about 90% underreporting, I would think that our underreporting is of the order of, what, 99%? <laughs> because it's just, if you look at the number of deaths associated with the vaccine, in the Canadian system, it's, some, it's something like 460. That's just not possible. Just look at the data around the world, and it just doesn't match the data. But we know now why Health Canada has not recorded the deaths, because it's so difficult to record anything. Uh, it, you know, I, I pointed out in my testimony how difficult it is, and that hasn't changed. My other question has to do with the so-called, I would say, balance of benefit and risk. And it seems to me that the during the COVID crisis, uh, with respect to any potential early treatment, the benefit to, to risk ratio has been tilled towards risk, not benefit. And for the vaccine, it's been tailed the other way around. So are we facing a clear case of double standard here? Very much so, Commissioner. Uh, the fact is the, the, the ivermectin uh, example that I ran through in my testimony is just one of several medications, some that are over-the-counter, that have been shown to have had remarkable efficacy in uh, COVID-19. I'll uh, give you an example. Uh, the, a meta-analysis where we put all the studies together and we use statistical methods to actually arrive at a, at a valid statistical conclusion of vitamin D showed that if your vitamin D levels were normal, you had an, uh, something like 70 to 80% less risk of landing up in the ICU. And that's been repeated in studies all over the world. So the, all the Canadian government had to do, if they really had our health at heart, was to send vitamin D by, by mail to every household. And they could have made a huge difference in the pandemic. We know that Canadians, especially in winter, have vitamin, vitamin D levels uh, that are suboptimal or deficient in up to 70% of the population. So uh, there are several drugs and combination of drugs that have been shown in study after study to be useful, which have not been actually taken up. So when the, to come back to your question, the risk-benefit scales have been tilted so much in favor of benefit, and they have been ignored but I pointed out that that's because there's no money to be made in hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, uh, and some of the, uh, these other medications. But there are billions and billions and billions of dollars to be made with the vaccine. So uh, can, can greed explain all this? I think it can. 
uh, uh, corporations have no morals. Uh, if uh, I, 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 I looked at the history of that banana company, I think it's called Chiquitica Bananas, in, the, in South America. In order to increase their corporate profits, they have engineered coups, uh, massacred tens of thousands of people, all just to, uh, to, to generate billions of dollars. So billions of dollars uh, were at, at stake. And all these other medications, vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, would have made them nothing at all. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, doctor. Thank you for coming back and facing our barrage of questions. Um, I believe that when you first uh, introduced yourself, you had said that you were involved with ethics in, uh, in, in uh, medicine. And my question to you is, is this concept of informed consent something brand new? No, Commissioner, it's not brand new. It's, it's, as, it's as old as medicine itself. Okay. And who is responsible to obtain informed consent from a patient? The health practitioner who is administering the intervention or treatment, in this case the vaccine, is responsible for getting informed consent. Do you believe it's acceptable for a health practitioner to follow blindly the orders of the health department? In other words, I was only following orders. Is that a, an excuse for not following this age-old concept of consent? That has never been an excuse. It wasn't an excuse that was accepted at Nuremberg. Uh, just following orders has never been an excuse. And in medicine, we have to put the patient first, not an order, uh, but the patient in front of you. Uh, first do no harm starts with the patient in front of you or the person in front of you to whom you're going to administer this intervention, the vaccine. And so that is, that is an overriding ethic overriding principle of medical ethics that should override everything else, putting the patient first. I think you talked about the doctor-patient relationship or a doctor-patient privilege relationship. Based on what you had testified, did we as a society, did, 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 did the medical profession allow a third party to get in between them and their patient? Yes, very much so. Uh, but I have to tell you, Commissioner, that that trend in medicine is not new. Um, the, the individual judgment of the, of the doctor vis-a-vis -vis his or her patient was always paramount in medicine for hundreds of years. And that's because it, it was understood that the human body has so many variations in physiology, in pathology, in the way it reacts to disease, that you cannot generalize uh, in, in any one particular patient. So the individual doctor-patient relationship was paramount. But about 20, 25 years ago, I've been teaching medical students and residents uh, all my career. But about 20, 25 years ago, uh, there, there came into medicine the, the, the so-called guidelines culture. 
So, um, in other words, guidelines would be put forward, which are essentially algorithmic guidelines, you know, which, uh, which work perhaps in a computer, but cannot work in a human being with so many variables. So the, the algorithmic guideline culture came into medicine and medical teaching about 20, 25 years ago. So the guideline, in, this, in essence, was going in between the physician and the patient. And who actually made those guidelines? It was by, almost all of them are by industry-funded physicians. So, um, you know, if, if you didn't know the guidelines, you would fail your exam, of course, as a medical student or resident. But the guidelines became like a god. And so that came between, uh, you, know, you know, common sense, ethical medical care, and, uh, you know, this guideline, guideline became a god. And I think that explains a lot of things in, in, in the COVID debacle as well. So unlike society in general, which was embracing diversity, are you telling me the medical profession was embracing uniformity, artificial <laughs> so, uniformity? Yes. yes. Can I ask you another question? Um, is there a surplus of surgeons with 25 years of experience in Saskatchewan? Uh, I don't think so, and uh, I would say not in most parts of Canada either. Perhaps this isn't a fair question to ask you, but do you think your removal as a experienced surgeon with 25 years of experience in Saskatchewan hurt the medical community or patient care? Most definitely, Commissioner. Are you aware that we had doctors um, testify to this commission that they were not only, that the CAFIS system was not only difficult to report to, but that they had been punished? And one doctor who had reported 10 cases, of which eight the, med the, uh, the, the health officer declined, and he was let go from his position for reporting too many reports to the CAFIS system? Uh, I know the doctor who you refer to, and I think it's unconscionable what happened to him. Um, I, I think some of the the uh, mistakes or the uh, egregious violation of medical ethics that have been committed, uh, and I'm I, I'm not I'm not saying this lightly, but some of them must. Uh, go into the area of criminal liability. If in fact, if in fact colleges have forbidden doctors from giving medical exemptions, and then somebody with a genuine reason for a medical exemption gets the vaccine and dies or gets a serious injury, there has to be liability for that. Uh, it's not enough to say that this was just a mistake or they were doing this in error. I mean, even, even, a, even a common sense analysis of some of the egregious violations of medical ethics should show the public that, in fact, the liability exists for harm to the public from the vaccine. Were you, uh, uh, we also had previous experts, medical experts, uh, testify to us that the, a number of the 
reported uh, vaccine um, adverse effects were very similar to the um, the uh, uh, the way the um, the the COVID-19 affected a body as well, so that it was uh, impossible or very very difficult to distinguish between the two. Uh, do you know? Have you heard that, or have you got any 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 opinion on that? Uh, yes and no, because there are some vaccine-specific uh, side effects which we know does not occur with the natural infection, and and we know, for example, that the uh, and uh, Mr. Kirsch pointed out the fact that myocarditis uh, after the infection is actually very uncommon. Uh, but after the vaccine is exceedingly common. So uh, we know of a big Israeli study that looked at hundreds of thousands of patients and showed that in the unvaccinated, the myocarditis rate was in fact no different from previous years. In other words, there was a steady baseline. But in the vaccinated, we know that myocarditis, and especially in young people, myocarditis is a specific vaccine-related risk. Now, there are some other things like Bell's palsy um, that Justin Bieber got and, uh, and so on, who, and we know that, uh, that, that it was probably the vaccine, uh, but we also know that the vaccine seems to be doing harm in different organ systems. So, <laughs> I'm not saying this is designed to cause harm. Uh, I think that our question was asked of Steve Kirsch. But if somebody were designing something to cause harm and kill people, this was a genius too, because it's so difficult to actually say that, you know, this is completely the vaccine's fault, uh, unless you do an autopsy. Uh, and that's why I think uh, Mr. Kirsch was saying very little is being done in terms of autopsy. But it, it affects so many different body systems that it is, it is actually sometimes very difficult to pin down that this is the vaccine. We heard uh, previous testimony that the, the process from start to finish, and to my mind finish is putting it in somebody's arm, had serious problems which uh, may account for some of the variability of the reports. For instance, uh, there were reports of concerns with regard to the technology itself. There were concerns with regard to the manufacturing quality control of the vaccines. And thirdly, there was concerns voiced with regard to the actual implementation or putting needles in arms where they were not aspirating. So my question is, is it possible that a lot of the variation of these reported effects are being are as variable as they are because there's so many variable issues with regard to manufacturing, actual injection, and the technology itself? Yes, I think that's very possible. Um, Dr. Peter McCullough um, pointed out the fact that the storage of, vac of these vaccine batches needs a particular cold chain where it has to be maintained at uh, anything from minus 30 to minus 10. And if it's not, the lipid nanoparticle, the mRNA and so on can deteriorate. 
and therefore a large proportion of those who are being vaxxed are actually getting duds, uh, and therefore they are all right. Yeah. But 15% or so are actually being injected with the, with the real thing and are getting problems. You know, the, 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 one of the um, witnesses talked about ivermectin, and they talked about the number of clinical studies that were done, peer-reviewed studies, independent studies that were done, and despite that, it was still um, discouraged, shall we say, by the government. So my question is, how many independent, <laughs> peer-reviewed studies were carried out on any of the vaccines prior to them being injected into people? Uh, as far as I know, Commissioner, none. Uh, in most of the regulatory agencies, including in Canada, patient-level data was not requested or required. Uh, in other words, the regulatory bodies gave approval based on Pfizer's own uh, telling of the results. So in other words, Pfizer, let's say you're a, uh, the Health Canada person, the chair of the vaccine approval committee. Pfizer comes up to you with a list of things that their own trials have, have shown, and you look at that and you have to give approval. But if you ask them, can you show me the actual data from individual patients, they don't have to show that to Health Canada. They have to show it to the US FDA though, you probably know of the fact that there was a, uh, a uh, FOIA request, a Freedom of Information request from the FDA for patient-level data. In, in other words, individual cases, you know, the, the actual health records. And, and the FDA said, oh, you know, we can't give it to you because if we were give, it, give it to you, it'll take uh, at 500 pages every month, it'll take 72 years. And then a judge said, no, you have to do it in two years. And that's actually been very good because it's giving us good, good data from Pfizer's own studies that these vaccines were not working and they were actually killing people. But that's not required in, in the Health Canada system. Were there any studies of these vaccines on pregnant women before they were given to pregnant women? None at all. Were there any specific studies done on children? before they were given to children? Uh, there were Pfizer-related trials. <laughs> Those trials were a farce because when we looked at the patient-level data, it showed that those children who were vaccinated actually got more sick. They got more sick and they had more hospitalizations and Pfizer's own data showed that the myocarditis rate with the vaccine was much higher. So, Yes, there were trials, very small ones, of children, but they showed that the vaccine was completely useless and dangerous for kids. Why did they call ivermectin horse paste? Because I think they thought that we were stupid. Well, my, 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 my <laughs> next question on that is, isn't penicillin given to horses as well? Commissioner, that's a very good question because penicillin when it first was discovered by Sir Alexander Fleming in England, uh, it started being used without randomized controlled trials. So 
the, the, the first randomized controlled trials in medicine were actually done in the 1950s. It was, it was in connection with smoking and lung cancer. Uh, and they showed there was, a, there was a clear risk and a clear connection. But penicillin literally saved hundreds of thousands of lives on the battlefield in World War II before there were randomized controlled trials. Now, in the case of ivermectin, not only were there randomized controlled trials that showed huge benefit, there was also observational studies that showed benefit. There were prevention studies that showed benefit. There were some studies that did not show benefit, but the point I was making in my testimony, Commissioner, is that this is a completely safe drug. Absolutely safe. Uh, in medicine, we speak of therapeutic range. In other words, the, the, the difference in dosage between the minimum effective dose and the maximum dose which, which causes toxic reactions. And the therapeutic range in ivermectin is very wide. It's safer than Tylenol. So why not use it? And that, that is the crucial point. Even if it didn't show efficacy in some studies, the majority of studies showed massive efficacy and it should have been used. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for your testimony today. I was hoping you could help me understand a little bit more about the adverse event reporting system. Uh, you talked about how the different layers you have to get through finding a doctor, uh, having the doctor navigate a nine-page report, um, and then having it approved by a public health, health official before it gets submitted to the system. And I'm just wondering, are doctors in Canada required to report adverse events from vaccines? Uh, there is an ethical uh, and moral requirement to do so, but as far as I know, I don't believe that there is a legal requirement to do so. So in the steps that you just mentioned, uh, I think you just omitted one step, and that is the doctor has to believe you and has actually to accept that this is vaccine-related. A lot of patients, a lot of our Canadian public are stumbling at that step. Even if they find a doctor, the doctor is telling them, oh, this is a coincidence in nine out of 10 cases. But that actually was going to be one of my next questions, yeah. was whether doctors are trained to recognize the potential adverse effects of vaccines. Uh, the answer is no. Uh, the, the fact is, uh, and, and this may surprise uh, the Canadian public and, and, and people listening to this, I don't think physicians have been trained to recognize vaccine injuries for any vaccine. So I don't, this ignoring of vaccine-related injuries, as I think uh, uh, Steve Kirsch pointed that out, is not a new thing in COVID. It, it was there for, uh, for, you know, I used to consider myself a pro-vaccine physician. But after this debacle, I started questioning everything. And the evidence for many childhood vaccines is uh, not what they were telling us. And the fact is, with childhood vaccines, with COVID, I feel confident that, uh, I mean, in medical school, that training is not given. There is no vaccine injury uh, segment where we, are, where we teach medical students, residents, how to recognize vaccine injuries. 
Um, and uh, to answer your question, no, I don't think physicians are trained to recognize vaccine injuries. And so you mentioned that once you have a doctor who does believe that there is a vaccine injury, they have to navigate this nine-page form that I think you said comes with a 40-page user guide. Absolutely. Is um, knowing how to complete that form part of training that doctors have? Commissioner, as far as I know, uh, that form uh, was completely new to most Canadian physicians. Um, that form has to be found uh, on Public Health Canada's website and downloaded. The f and then there's the 40-page instructions on how to fill that form. Um, you know, how many physicians have the time to do that? And then after filling that form, uh, as I pointed out, they have to send it to the provincial public health agency in Saskatchewan. There's no fax number, not even an email address. You have to send it by ordinary mail. When that person, when that vaccine injury report is received by provincial health agency, the, there is a public health officer, presumably, that looks at it and then decides whether to approve it or not without seeing the patient. This is the broken system we have. And my final question actually relates to that review by the public official. Are there any public or known guidelines as to uh, when or how such a report would be accepted into the system? Uh, I would be surprised if they don't have their own uh, guideline protocols uh, which, which, which inform them whether to approve or not to approve. I think uh, this is part of the guidelines problem. It's an algorithmic approach. Um, and, and, the, and, and the main thing is they haven't seen the patient and they get to approve it or not approve it. Thank you. Thank you. To come back to my double standard idea, it seems to me that we've heard from other people at previous hearing that if they didn't want to, a healthcare worker didn't want to get vaccinated, they were sentenced to some sort of special training session that would educate them about vaccine hesitancy and so on. So it seems that there are some resources to train a healthcare worker about the issue of the benefit of the vaccine, but do we have the similar training about potential adverse events? Uh, the answer is, as far as I know, no. Sorry. Um, when I was listening to you answering questions, I thought of something else. I was a uh, professional engineer for four, over 40 years, 43 years, I believe, and new products were coming out for us all the time. And I'll never forget, as a young engineer, I was going to use a certain product, and the, my boss came to me and lectured me about how I had to, satisfy, had to be satisfied in and of myself, apart from the literature, that this product was safe and effective. And so my question to you is, what, what responsibility do individual health practitioners, not just doctors, but nurses or pharmacists who are uh, administering these shots, 
what personal responsibility or professional responsibility did they have to confirm whether or not the shiny brochures that they received from the suppliers actually were true and that this thing was safe and effective? Uh, that's a very good question, Commissioner. Uh, uh, let me answer it uh, in two parts. Uh, doctors are trained to look at data, to look at studies, and to look at the statistics to make to see whether they make sense. The training, though, I mean, I I had actually a lot of experience in data analysis because I was the director of quality and patient safety, and the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program that I introduced was very data intensive. It's very interesting to me that many of the egregious violations of medicine, medical ethics, and so on have been, have been unearthed to the public by people like you who have training in data, uh, economists, for example, uh, and people like Steve Kirsch, uh, who have a much superior statistical understanding of how to interpret studies than doctors do. So, so for example, the, uh, the, these famous Ferguson model, there was a guy in England called Ferguson. Uh, I, I, I have absolutely no idea how he keeps his job because in, in pandemic after pandemic, he has been wildly wrong and he still keeps his job, and he made a completely ridiculous, nonsensical, comical, uh, you know, prediction about the COVID pandemic. And my son, who's an economist and has been trained in econometrics, was looking at that and said, you know, Dad, you know, even in undergrad economics, we know that this model is all nonsense. Why don't these guys actually do proper models? So the guys who are trained in statistics, data management, and so on, including financial guys, are able to see through the data better than physicians. And, and so I think public health people think they're the only people who can interpret data, and that's not true. I can interpret data because I'm a physician trained in statistics and data analysis. So can people who can look at the data dispassionately. Um, like you. So that's the first part of my, uh, my, my, my answer. Uh, and the second part uh, it would be to recall to the public the fact that when the data is, is, is analyzed and is clear, authorities have not accepted the data. So um, you know, there's, there's abundant evidence, as Steve Kirsch pointed out, that the, the, the vaccine does not prevent transmission and does not prevent infection. Now, uh, public health officials in Canada and other Western countries uh, have ignored that data and have created an, their own set of rules. Our prime minister does that all the time. He, he, he creates uh, his own set of truth. And that, I think, is a societal problem. Uh, the, the ability to define truth for yourself instead of looking for a transcendent uh, source of truth, which most people uh, call God or divine truth, which used to inform medical ethics for generations. All the medical ethical 
codes. The codes of Hippo Hippocrates, you know, he, he called on the Greek gods. Uh, and even the modified Hippo Hippocratic oath in the Christian era said that I, would, I will never uh, uh, think of myself as God. Uh, and then the, the, the Arabic uh, Al-Rawawi uh, oath uh, has, has uh, the, 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 the looking to Allah as the source of all, um, of, of all moral and medical knowledge and wisdom. And then you have um, Maimonides in the Jewish tradition, who was a rabbi as well as a physician. Uh, and then Thomas Sydenham, who, who, uh, who, who, who actually said um, primum non nocere uh, in the 17th century. So in all this, there was a, there was, there was a looking for transcendent truth that is, lies beyond yourself. In the modern era, the universities have been captured by the postmodern construct of localized version of truth. And that's why they say, okay, that's your truth, this is my truth. Uh, so, okay, uh, vaccines don't stop infection, that is your truth. But my truth says that it does. The data doesn't really matter. That's, that's part of the problem in society, I think, with the public too. They're able to construct their own truth uh, I was mentioning to one of the commissioners uh, uh, at lunch today that the public keeps talking about doctors and, say, uh, and says, where is your Hippocratic oath? What the public doesn't know is that only a minority of medical schools now take the Hippocratic oath. Uh, in, in the US, it is, it's only 40% that take the Hippocratic oath. Some medical schools, including prominent medical schools in the United States, ask medical students to write their own oaths. That is, that is part of that postmodern construct. You know, this is my truth sort of thing, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Christian. On thank behalf you, of the National Citizens Inquiry, I'd like to sincerely thank you for attending today and sharing with us Thank you.